Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me for another fun and informative episode of the Paralegal Voice on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Jill Francisco, an advanced certified paralegal, immediate past president of NALA, the Paralegal Association, and your host of this episode of the Paralegal Voice. I have over 22 years of paralegal experience, and I'm so super excited to share my knowledge and enthusiasm for the paralegal profession with you. So we have a wonderful guest for today's show, but before we welcome him, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Today's sponsor is Legal Inc. Makes it easy for paralegals to digitally automate tasks like business formations, corporate filings, and registered agent services nationwide. Visit LegalInc.com backslash podcast to create your free account. We would also like to thank ServeNow. ServeNow is a nationwide network of trusted pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, who embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit ServeNow.com to learn more. Thank you to NALA, the Paralegal Association. NALA is a professional association for paralegals, providing continuing education, voluntary certification, and professional development programs. NALA has been a sponsor of the Paralegal Voice since our very first show. And also, thank you to courtfiling.net. E-file court documents with ease in California, Illinois, Indiana, and Texas. To learn more, visit courtfiling.net to take advantage of a free 30-day trial. So I am so very excited, like I said, to have Brian Moore, a partner of Dinsmore & Shoal LLP, He's practicing in the labor and employment law, and I actually work with him, have the privilege, I should say, to work with him, but I've known Brian for many, many years, and so it's truly a treat to um, have him with me today to give you guys some valuable information regarding COVID and how it's impacting the labor and employment law, and most importantly, paralegals and other legal staff. Thank you, Jill, for having me back on the show. Excited to speak with you again. Uh, 2020 certainly has been an interesting ride. I know. it's. Uh, I can't believe it's December, though. We're. <laughs> I feel like we're almost into 2021. Looking forward to it. So anyway, Brian, I know, like you said, this is a you're coming back on the show. You briefly made an appearance. I think it was in the summer leading up to Nala's 2020 first virtual conference. And we had you on for a little teaser. So why don't you kind of remind everybody of your background and your experience? Sure. I've been practicing labor and employment law in West Virginia and Kentucky for 19 years, although 2020 has felt like about 10 years. So maybe I should say 29 years total of experience. <laughs> I'm with you. I grew up in West Virginia, attended West Virginia University, and then decided I wasn't ready for the real world. So I went to WVU Law School because, quite honestly, you know, I'm not one of those people who had a lifelong ambition of being a lawyer. But I guess it was a big gamble. Thankfully for me, uh, it paid off because I really enjoy being a lawyer now. So, <laughs> And if you ask my kids what I do for a living, they say that I type on the computer and host conference calls and now, of course, Zoom meetings in 2020. So that's kind of what I do. <laughs> I work at Dinsmore and Shoal Law Firm since 2008. I'd say I spend about 80% of my time working on employment law issues and about 20% of my time on traditional labor work, uh, working with companies and unions on collective bargaining agreement negotiations, issues and disputes arising under those agreements. And of course, this year, I've spent too much time dealing with the issue of COVID-19. 
Yes, yes. And Brian, gosh, when you said 19 years, that kind of made me feel a little, has it been that long? <laughs> it has been that long. So now <laughs> I had worked with Jill back at the beginning and I'm working with her now. We we had this big elaborate plan to bring it back together, right? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> okay. So yes, speaking of COVID-19, I mean, it's definitely, even from my perspective, obviously having a impact on the labor and employment law. I mean, I think that's now... And like I said, years to come. And you're, you had a, like I said, I mentioned before, you had an office session that was presented at the 2020 NILA annual conference. And I think you touched on, we were kind of, I think it was like hot issues at the time. And we touched on some of the information regarding the emergency temporary leave laws. I think since then, there's been some changes, but why don't you start off by giving our listeners a little bit of the basic, you know, and a little bit of highlights of these laws. Sure. And you're right. I talked a little bit about these at the conference. And, and interestingly, when we started planning for the conference and hot issues in employment law, that was not <laughs> going to be one of the issues. But of course, it turned into one of the issues and forced its way into the presentation. In April of this year, Congress enacted the Family First Coronavirus Relief Act. What was so groundbreaking about it is that there has never been federally mandated sick leave for employees until this act. And because of coronavirus, um, this emergency leave was enacted. It provides employees 80 hours of emergency leave if they fall into one of six categories. And those six categories are one, that the employee is subject to a federal, state, or local quarantine or isolation order. Two, they've been advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine. Three, they are experiencing symptoms of COVID-19 and seeking a diagnosis. Four, they are caring for an individual covered by number one or number two. Five, they are caring for a son or daughter whose school or place of care is closed due to COVID-19 precautions. Or six, any other substantially similar condition. And thankfully, we don't have this yet. That's just built in in case something similar to COVID-19 would come up. An important aspect of this leave, though, you don't automatically get it if you have COVID-19 or symptoms. You only get it if you have those things, if you fall into one of those six categories and you're unable to work or telework. Hmm. So let's say I have a mild case of COVID-19, but I can sit at home on my computer and work and I'm fine. I'm not eligible for the leave. So you have to be unable to work or telework in order to get to the 80 hours of emergency sick leave. Um, there's also Emergency Family Medical Leave Act leave under this law. It is, though, only for um, an employee who needs to miss work because of school-related closures or childcare unavailability due to COVID-19. You know, under the normal FMLA, you have to meet certain criteria as an employer to be covered by it. Those criteria don't apply here. This applies to everyone. It applies to employees that have worked for the employer for 30 days or more, and it's up to 12 weeks of leave. Hmm. Now, a very important aspect of both of these types of emergency leave is that they are slated to end December 31st of 2020, unless extended by Congress and the president. So you'll want to keep an eye on the news because there are, there is talk of possibly extending it, but nothing has happened yet. Hmm. That is super interesting about when you mentioned about the school, because I don't know if people that would immediately, you know, come to mind. I mean, you know, when you think about it, you think if you're sick, if you have to, like you said, care for somebody that's sick. But it's interesting, like, because I'm sure you're in the same boat <laughs> as I am with J.D. He's a sophomore, my son, and he's been, I think the past, he was going two days a week 
he was doing, re, uh, you know, and then doing the rest of his work the rest of the week. He just had, you know, he was at home, but he just spent his time doing the assignments that he got on the two days he went live. But I think this is going on the third week that they, or, you know, our county's been orange. And so he's been, you know, now they have a new remote schedule where I think it's like one fifteen to 3.30 every day. And, you know, that's really something to consider. I wasn't really aware. And I think it's nice that you went over that in detail because I didn't know that that you know, kind of factored in with that. But, you know, I guess, like you said, the the child could be at home, the parent can be at home with a child, but also throw in the telework there, then you're not covered by the act, but that's still get, you know, it's an option that you get to keep working. I mean, you know, it could still work. Another important aspect of it is that the burden or the cost doesn't actually fall on employers. It is paid for ultimately by federal tax money wow. um, because employers get an instant uh, payroll credit um, mm. for for the amount of the leave that they have to provide under this law. Well, that that's helpful because especially with I know businesses struggling now, it would it would probably even be a bigger burden on them. So I know you said that was in April of 2020. And now I think it was, if I'm correct, was it on September 11th of this year, the U.S. Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division announced revisions to the regulations that implemented the paid sick leave and the expanded Family and Medical Leave Act provisions of the Family's First Coronavirus Response Act. Could you please kind of talk about maybe the little high points and explain like some of those changes that came in um, in September? Yeah, sure. And I think that was the result of a lawsuit that had been filed um, as to some aspects of the regulations. And the result was revised regulations that went into effect, as you said, September 11th. Uh, the most notable change under this is that the definition of healthcare provider was changed. Under um, the original regulations, healthcare provider was exempt from having to provide the emergency leave. So, ironically, mm. the people who may yeah. need the leave more than anyone were not eligible for it. And healthcare <laughs> provider was defined to include anyone who worked for a healthcare provider. So, it could be the receptionist. Mm. That definition was changed in September to make it that only medical personnel um, are exempt. People who actually administer patient care, such as nurses, doctors, things like that, they are not eligible for the emergency leave. And of course, I've pointed out the irony in that, but we also understand that these are the people on the front line right. and the essential workers that that maybe we cannot afford this, this luxury of letting them have time off if you know they don't have COVID, they're, they're caring for someone with COVID, things like that. Certainly, if they have COVID, then an employer needs to give them the time off, regardless of whether you know it's mandated under this particular law or not. There were, um, Jill, some other clarifications to the well, regulations, yeah. but a lot of it was just like um, tightening some things up, such as when does an employee have to give notice of the mm. leave, and it's as soon as practicable, and then also that you could use both types of leave intermittently, so you don't have to take them oh, okay. in one, one long stretch. You could take them intermittently as needed. Which isn't, is that how the FMLA was designed too, right? You don't have to take it altogether. Like, for instance, I think obviously when I was on maternity leave, I took it all together with JD. But then when Sean, my husband, um, had a leg injury, he, you know, I was off a little bit. And then kind of periodically when he went in for different surgeries as follow-up. And I think I remember I didn't have to take all that in one big chunk. Yeah, that's true. As long as you have the medical provider say that, you know, intermittent leave yeah. is necessary uh, on the paperwork, then that's true. 
That's a good. That's a. I mean, it's a. It's something to consider because I know people get alarmed when it's like, you know, you, you you get that off, you get that time off, but you don't necessarily need all that time off in big chunk. You need it over the course of you know a few months to take you know to take care of something that's ongoing. Right. Some people have conditions that flare up, and it's especially um, important for that. Right. Okay. So before Brian, we go on to our next point of discussion. We need to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. NALA members receive exclusive content, such as the Paralegal Utilization and Compensation Survey Report, access to a members-only collaboration site, discounts on office products and car rental, access and preferred placement on a web platform for paralegal contract jobs, and access to the member-only career center. NALA members also receive discounted education and products. Join NALA today and become a part of our community. Learn more at NALA.org. Today's episode is brought to you by Legal Inc. Legal Inc. is empowering paralegals to embrace their inner legal rock star by automating the everyday tasks that hold them back. Through their free dashboard solution, paralegals can quickly and easily automate services like business formations, corporate filings, registered agent services, and more. Visit LegalInc.com to create a free account and check out LegalInc.com forward slash podcast for a chance to win legal rockstar swag. Welcome back to the Paralegal Voice. I'm Jill Francisco, and my guest today is Brian Moore. And today we're discussing issues regarding COVID and, you know, some tips and things that employees need to look out for regarding the labor and employment field that Brian practices in. So one thing, obviously, that's all in the news, you and I were talking earlier, is the vaccine is out there. We're getting the first doses, you know, um, being distributed. And so even my secretary was asking me the other day, you know, what do you think about how employers will handle this? You know, will employers be able to require the employees to get the vaccination when it becomes available at the different stages? I think that's uh, an intriguing question. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's a, it's a touchy <laughs> subject. And, yes. Um, probably open a can of worms um, with this one. But the short answer is, I think, and some people may not want to hear this, but I think the short answer is I think employers will be able to mandate the vaccine so long as they take into account certain legal exceptions. Those industries working directly with the public, such as healthcare and retail, probably in a stronger position to argue that they can mandate that employees get the vaccine. Employers whose employees can telework, maybe do a substantial portion of their work from home, may be in a weaker position to argue that they should have mandatory vaccinations. This is uh, definitely an unsettled question. What we do know, however, is that so far the law has treated COVID-19 a little bit differently than other health issues. For example, the EEOC has already said the virus serves as a direct threat to coworkers and the public. So it has allowed mm. employers to be more invasive than they normally would be allowed. HIPAA provisions have been relaxed because of the virus. This issue is going to be tested either way. I mean, we know this. People are going to complain either way. So if employers mandate the vaccination, they will probably have some lawsuits from people alleging disability discrimination, religious discrimination, invasion of privacy, and probably several other things. If they don't mandate the vaccine, they could be sued for negligence, possibly OSHA violations, basically anything related to disregarding the safety of employees and the public. If I had to guess right now, I would say employers will be allowed to mandate vaccinations. And I believe we're we're seeing some authority that's saying that already. 
but they're going to have to make accommodations if someone says, I have a disability and, and for whatever reason need this accommodation of not taking the vaccine, or I have a sincerely held religious belief that prohibits me from taking the vaccine. It can't just be that I'm anti-vaccine. It has right. to be that it's a religious belief in a sincerely held religious belief that would prohibit the person from taking uh, the vaccine. And you touched on something a moment ago, Jill, which is we get inundated with bad yeah. news about yeah. COVID-19. And a lot of times we want to take a break from it. And I do that mm-hmm. as well. And it's exhausting. And sometimes you just <laughs> want to bury your head in the sand. Yes. But I would say it's good advice for you, your listeners, for me, and for everyone to pay attention to this stuff because mm-hmm. it affects us not only professionally, but personally, <laughs> including yep. this issue with the vaccine. I mean, it's a very good question. Let's go back and circle around just for a minute because it's, it's intriguing to me because, you know, obviously working with you on the on the labor employment cases. So, you know, the employers from the employers aspect, creating the safe work environment. So, I mean, do you open up that door to where my coworker doesn't get the vaccine so then, and I get the vaccine, then is that for me, like I'm upset or say, well, I'm not going to come in here because she's put me at risk. It's not a safe work environment. I mean, is that, am I getting, am I kind of thinking about that? I mean, are we going to go down that road sometime, you think? Uh, I guess under your example, the employer does not mandate the vaccine. Right, correct, right? correct. So it's, I think the employer is going to have to show um, that they took the necessary precautions. Yep. If it's not that they require a vaccine, I think as long as they can show the other things that we've all become accustomed to this year, social yep. distancing, mask, mask wearing where appropriate, sanitizer stations and all of that good stuff, you know, there's no perfect answer or right or wrong answer to yep. any of this. I think the best practices are constantly evolving. But yep. as long as a company can can argue that or an employer could argue that it's implemented best practices, whatever those may be, which may or may not include requiring a vaccine, then I think they'll be on pretty solid footing. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. And I think also it's to me, that's an argument from the employer's perspective to require the vaccine to create the safe work environment. Yeah, and I think a lot will. But interestingly, like Facebook has said, when their employees return in the summer of 2021, they're not, as of right now, they're not going to require the vaccine. To get it. Huh. So I think as a practical matter, legally, they may be allowed to. Right. As a practical matter, I think a lot of employers will be hesitant to require it. It'll be interesting to see how it pans out, because obviously, too, with with I mean, just the first few people are getting the vaccine, like how, you know, what, you know, what, rea- you know, maybe reactions or, you know, to me, there's going to be some stuff that possibly could influence more people getting it or being maybe hesitant to get it or, you know, that type of thing down the road. So keeping with the, we, we sound like you're getting into medical, even though we're <laughs> lawyers lawyers and paralegals here. Uh, the other thing that I heard that I've been hearing a lot uh, from listening to the news just today, and I think there was an article the other day out, is the concerns about the information that's being collected from people receiving the vaccine. And of course, you know, I deal almost probably on a daily basis, if not every other day with the HIPAA when I'm uh, requesting the medical records and compiling those. And so, you know, I think there's a concern there and the, obviously the amount of information and type of information given to the government. So do, what are your thoughts about that? Because I'm sure you've heard of that going down. You know, like I said, the information that's being collected from the people getting vaccinated thus far. Well, uh, do you want me to answer as a lawyer or as a person? Um, <laughs> you, you've hit on to, another hot, hot button issue, but um, hot you, you, topics. Are, you are correct that the, the Trump administration yeah. has asked the states in administering the vaccine to supply 
to the federal government names, birth dates, ethnicities, and addresses of individuals receiving vaccinations. Obviously, as you've just touched on, this raises a host of concerns related to privacy, immigration, and other laws. Some states have already objected to this and are fighting with the federal government about it. The administration fighting back says, hey, we're not going to share this with all the various federal agencies. We're collecting it for a legitimate purpose, which is to track people who move across state lines and make sure they receive follow-up doses Hmm. and to track the vaccine's effectiveness among different ethnic groups. We don't know how this one's going to play out yet. It's it's going to be a fight, and it's definitely an issue that we'll want to follow. It may change under the Biden administration. So, I mean, we'll find that out in a few weeks, I guess. If you have personal concerns about it, you should dig around on the Internet and see what your state's stance is, um, because all the different states may have a different stance on this. Some of them are going to freely cooperate with what the federal government wants. And others, like New York, has said we don't want to. And California said we don't want to cooperate with all this data gathering. Is there any, um, because I had not heard this and I don't know the answer, is there any recourse that if they are, if you know, like now it's being distributed to the state. So if the state objects to providing that information, because right now it's being requested, does that influence or alter the amounts of vaccine and things that the state uh, can get? Have you heard anything on that? Haven't heard anything on that. My prediction is the states are still going to get the vaccines and some of the states have already said, well, we're not going to give you all the data you want, right. but we'll get we'll give you some data um, and right. maybe block out some of the personal identifiers and things like that the best we can. But I think that they'll still get the vaccines. And, and yeah. And my prediction is that things will probably change in a few weeks under the new administration. It reminded me of all the redacting. I need to redact information <laughs> on that. You know, like looking for the date of birth always pops out. I feel like the date of birth is a hot one that, you we know. We could do a whole show on redacting. <laughs> we could do. A, I mean, it's like redacting. It, it brings the nightmares about more to redact. So before we kind of come back and do our wrap up, we need to take one other quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry, connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. This episode of The Paralegal Voice is brought to you by CourtFiling.net, your solution for electronic filing in California, Illinois, Indiana, and Texas. CourtFiling.net provides a better e-filing experience so you can spend more time helping clients. Because they know that work sometimes happens after hours, CourtFiling.net offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit CourtFiling.net to receive 30 days of unlimited free electronic filings and see how you too can e-file court documents with ease. Welcome back to The Paralegal Voice. I'm Jill Francisco, and my guest today is Brian Moore. Before the break, we were kind of wrapping up our discussion on the concerns that we're having with giving personal information from the people that are receiving the vaccine. So maybe stemming from that, probably not, but who knows, you know, uh, is lawsuits. We always talk about lawsuits. So have you seen any COVID-related labor and employment cases yet this year? Yes, I have. And I, I predicted months ago that yep, we would I think see you said that a July. lot of litigation <laughs> related to COVID-19. Some people 
argued with me and said, no, people understand it's a pandemic and mm. that there's going to be employment loss. Uh, my answer is no, they don't understand. <laughs> when it comes to them personally, there's always mm-hmm. going to be lawsuits and litigation. Um, some of the cases I've already started handling where COVID is directly at issue are people who have had COVID, recovered from it, and then get fired shortly thereafter in um, are claiming that the employer perceived them as having some kind of disability, depending oh. on what state that you live in, different states. You know, in West Virginia, there's a fairly liberal interpretation of what a disability is and what perceived as being disabled is. And so employees have brought, or former employees have brought those kinds of lawsuits. There have also been several lawsuits I have where COVID is mentioned as the excuse given by the employer for terminating or laying off employees. And the employee says, no, that's not the real reason. The real reason (laughs) is illegal age discrimination, and you just used COVID-19 to cover that up. Mm. Um, Other types of cases I've seen, I haven't personally handled these, but um, there's been occupational exposure types of cases, OSHA Mm -hmm. complaints filed by employees, any kind of claim you can think of where an employee might argue the employer is not taking adequate care of me. Mm-hmm. Um, bottom line, I think that we're going to see COVID-19 um, have an impact on employment litigation for years to come. It's going to be referenced in some way or another. I could even see an employee claiming that maybe they complained about the methods the employer was using uh, mm-hmm. to safeguard employees and that that's some kind of public policy claim that would prohibit mm. them from being discharged. Um, so I think we'll be dealing with this issue for years to come. Basically, the sky's the limit as to how this could impact employment litigation. So if you're looking for career longevity, um, <laughs> yeah. you might want to pick up some labor and employment <laughs> law expertise. Yeah, I think that's good advice. And like anything else, I mean, I thought it might take a little longer to evolve. But, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, gosh, it's already been since March. You know, like, like, it's not like it just happened. So it's all like you said, you're already seeing stuff coming in. I was thinking that it might take a little longer, you know, to really develop and see the cases actually, you know, come to uh, being filed, you know, that type of thing, the attorneys, the plaintiff's attorneys getting a hold of them and things. But that's uh I'm sure that it's going to be, like you said, it's just going to keep going. And I mean, I don't, I know there's going to be possibly, you know, legit things, but obviously (laughs) we're defense, we're on the defense over here. Um, You know, it's, I feel like it's going to be frivolous stuff just like anybody else. You know, I walked into a store and I, you know, the slip and fall or, you know, whatever. And so then you have to, you know, I always compare it to raking over the coals, all of the plaintiffs, all of the lawsuits, you know, fine tooth comb, because otherwise, it just gets out of control. It's always you know? personal. Yeah. You know, terminations are always personal. So the person's always going to be upset. And of right. course, no, and you just put yourself in their <laughs> shoes and you can see, you know, anytime you lose uh, your job, you're going to be upset about it. And yes. If you can blame someone else for that, you might want to at least attempt that. Right, right. Yes, you're, you're exactly right. And so I think like you talked about, you're already seeing this year. So do you see anything, you know, I guess different or probably just continuing things coming in 2021 on the labor and employment law stemming from, of course, the coronavirus pandemic? I mean, lawsuits, maybe further regulations, you know, maybe the regulations, like you said, they're not going to be extended right now past the end of the year. So you know, what do you feel like we're going to be dealing with come 2021? I think all of the above, more laws, more regulations, <laughs> more, more, to more. This, more lawsuits. I think there'll definitely be lawsuits about the vaccinations mm. that we talked about. Um, yep. e- either way on that one, I think there'll be lawsuits. 
quick question kind of back to the vaccine, because I was just curious. Is there any ever things about the flu and things like that with the employer? I mean, obviously, you know, our employer obviously kind of promotes it. They get they make it easy for you to obtain it and get it, you know, free of cost. Right. You don't have to leave your office. You don't have to make an appointment. You know, is there anything, you know, in the beginning, was it ever discussed or ever thought that, you know, when the flu started out or whatever, you know, was it going to be mandatory, you know, type thing, or it just never was that bad? You know, I don't know the answer to that definitively, but yeah. I don't, I have not heard of anything where that's ever been mandated by employers. Right. And like we said earlier, COVID-19 is being treated differently than yep. a lot of things. Uh, we also normally wouldn't disclose health information about people and things like that, but right. HIPAA has been relaxed so that if you need to make people aware that they may have been exposed to COVID-19, then you, you can do that without violating HIPAA. So there's been a lot of um, relaxation of laws and regulations due to this this pandemic. Yeah, you're right, especially with the tracings. And then, you know, I'm sure you get the same thing. We get a call from the school all the time. There's been, you know, and then so-and-so, you know, 30 people have to quarantine. We're all learning and you're just trying to, I mean, I think the ultimate thing is protection and protecting people, you know, and it's hard. It's hard to know, you know, sometimes which way to go. And then you find yourself and you got to kind of go another way and and fix it up. But, uh, you know, it's it's definitely been different because I know the HIPAA, you know, is used to be very strict. It was like hands off, you know, and now it's it's surprising. No perfect answer to any of this. And I do get a lot of questions about uh, quarantining and, and, and isolating. And if you, you know, you got to listen to your local health department and things like that. But right. if you, if it's a practical matter, you know, if you listen to everything everyone says, then probably everyone should be locked down. Right. Um, <laughs> the entire year. So, because uh, <laughs> as a practical matter, though, can that actually happen? So, I, you know. Uh, I'm mixing right. some practical advice along with my <laughs> legal advice. Right, right. I think that's a good combination. Well, Brian, that's all the time we have for today. And, you know, I really appreciate you coming back and being on and elaborating and giving our listeners some very valuable information. They'll be able to pay attention on some things coming down the pike that it may affect them. So I really appreciate it. So if listeners wanted to kind of follow up or reach out to you, um, what is the best way that they could contact you? Uh, sure. E- email is probably the easiest way to contact me. Brian, B-R-I-A-N dot Moore, M-O-O-R-E at Dinsmore, D-I-N-S-M-O-R-E dot com. All right. Well, Brian, thank you again so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And thank you also to all our listeners who tuned in today. If you have any questions or comments for me, please contact me at jfrancisco at logical.com. I hope you will join me for our next episode. I'm Jill Francisco for The Paralegal Voice, signing off. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. 
Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.